thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. I'm delighted to have you with me as we continue our conversation about the difference between a biblical conception of law, its relationship to common law, and the positivistic atmosphere of law that we breathe in today and don't even realize it. And I look forward to what we're going to cover today so that the distinction between the biblical conception of law and the modern positivistic conception of law becomes very clear to you in real examples. Now, last week, we spoke of former U.S. Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes. He was a scientific materialist who followed in the footsteps of the father of legal positivism, late 18th and early 19th century philosopher Jeremy Bentham. He was also the founder of what we would call utilitarianism, an unbiblical view of reality and the cosmos that we don't have time to get into today. But Oliver Wendell Holmes is a critical figure in United States history and in American jurisprudence because he's the person who transformed, deformed, or distorted, we might say, the original conception of common law that had developed through the Puritan Revolution and was brought forward into the United States. Now, as a quick refresher about positive law and an introduction to what we're going to cover today, I want to play two audio clips from a lecture given by Jonathan Burnside, the professor of biblical law at the University of Bristol Law School in Bristol, England. And by the way, you can find his entire remarks on YouTube under the Hale Institute channel. I would encourage you to go there and listen to the entirety of his lecture. And in fact, there were two of them, and I would encourage you to listen to both of them. But for our purposes today, for context, the first clip begins with Professor Burnside saying, we think we know what law is and explaining why he thinks that we think we know what it is. And then he's going to explain what positive law is and the form of reasoning that is applied in a positive law system. It's fascinating, as you'll see when we begin to work that kind of reasoning out in the context of some scripture we're going to look at. And then what I'm going to do after that is apply that to what's going on in federal court today, even as I'm recording this episode with respect to state laws trying to stop or prohibit transgender procedures being implemented on minors. So let's take a listen to these two clips from Professor Burnside. We want to do the application today without thinking about how it applied then. Now that is partly because we think we know the answers already because we live in a world of law. We all know what law is and how it works. Law is the most obvious 
of social phenomena. It's the one which, to us it seems, requires the least explanation. So when it comes to biblical law, we just assume we know what it is. Law is law is law. And what we mean by law today in Western liberal democracies is something called legal positivism. Now, legal positivism is the idea that, there we are, that law is something that is posited by somebody else. Law is a command, a one-way projection of authority that is universally applied, that's written down and understood in semantic terms. In other words, according to the meaning of the words that we find in the rule. Uh, we will naturally tend to think about biblical law in this way because Bentham's positivist ideal of law is implicit in the ideals of modern law and law making. And that pervades our whole culture and our thinking. So now that we've listened to that, the question is, well, what is semantic reasoning? in a positive law system? And how does it compare to how law is understood and presented in the Bible? Which, as we said a week or two ago, is closely associated with wisdom. The psalmist talks about, I meditate on your law day and night. Nobody goes in home and meditates on the Tennessee or Georgia code or you know the, the laws uh, enacted by the legislature of California. We don't we don't look for wisdom from them. We just look for rules, commands of the sovereign, so we know uh, what we can and can't not do and what we'll be penalized for, right? That's a very Benthamite, Holmesian view of what law is, a command of the sovereign to which penalties are applied. So before I understood the difference between a biblical conception of law and a positive law system, I could not figure out Proverbs 26, verses 5 and 6. Part of the reason I now realize it was hard for me to understand that passage, even as of like three years ago, was because I am so steeped in positive law, thinking and semantic reasoning about words. So in those verses, we see that we are commanded as follows. Do not argue with a fool, lest you become like him. Okay, I got it. Do not argue with a fool. But the next verse says, argue with a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So, as a lawyer, as a legislator, I looked at those two verses and I thought, okay, we essentially have... Uh, uh, title 26 of section Proverbs of the law of God. And part A, which is verse 5, says, do not argue with a fool according to his folly. Okay. But part B, there must be a drafting error here because it says that I should argue with the fool according to his folly. Uh, something's just wrong here. See, the semantic reasoning of the word says those uh, section A and section B here, now, verses 5 and 6, they contradict each other. Surely the word not uh, shouldn't be in one of those verses. Otherwise, they don't make sense. 
But with a biblical conception of law, what God is challenging us to do is to meditate on his law, to understand if this is the law of God, that he is communicating something to us that we need to know. And some of the truths of God are, are mysteries to men, particularly men that have no spiritual understanding, they, who live in a world of semantic reasoning and positive law. And they'd say, these verses contradict each other. See, the Bible is not true. It's false. But what he's saying is, the fool will make certain kinds of argument, and if you argue with him according to his framework for framing the issue in the argument, then you will become like him, a fool. But you need to argue with the fool according to his folly, but in a way that he doesn't become wise in his own eyes. Now, I'm going to give you just a practical example, but I recently attended seminar on, on creation. And essentially, the concept was, we're going to give you reasons to believe that God exists, God created. And the problem is that we're arguing under the framework of the atheist that says, you have to prove God to me. We put God in the dock rather than letting God put man in the dock, is C.S. Lewis. So we agree with him that we have to prove by reason that God exists, that he created the world, and now we are arguing with the fool according to his folly. And scripture would say, that is not good, that is not wise. Man, without God, has no ability to think rational thoughts at all, period. So you need to accept the fool's folly and then challenge his presuppositions underneath it so that he doesn't become wise in his own eyes. You see, if I argue with him according to his own framework, he will think I am wise in my own eyes. See, he has accepted my premise that man's mind and his reason is able to come to conclusions about God. Well, you might come to the conclusion there is a God, but I'll guarantee you the God deduced through reason will be more akin to pantheism or deism than it will be the triune God that makes no sense, and the Bible even calls a mystery that God is one and three and three and one. That just won't compute. And then you're going to have to turn to the Bible, and you've just convinced the person that his reason was sufficient to come to know God. But not really. Not the God of the Bible. So how is this working itself out in the courtrooms? Well, I had an epiphany actually last Sunday. I don't know when you'll be listening to this, but anyway, it's toward the end of May. And uh, it was sort of horrifying. A couple of things came together in my mind that Sunday afternoon from having listened earlier in the week to one of my favorite podcasts, if not my favorite podcast, present company accepted, of course, is um, Knox Unplugged. And Jason Farley 
and uh, Jock Knox, David Shannon, were were talking in this episode. I think it was called uh, Restoring Truth Through Beauty, Chapter 1 or something like that. But they were talking about the fact that so many Christians are so frustrated with so much that's taking place around them, and, and they just want to pass a law to stop the madness, you know, stop people from butchering young girls and young boys in ways that prevent them from being able to develop organically, naturally, and be able to be mothers and fathers. Just let, let's stop this. And, and and Knox was saying, how do we get to the point where we don't even know that this is morally wrong and we have to pass a law on it? Now, Jason Farley responded and said, well, Actually, and I appreciate the kudos, he said, I learned from David Fowler that we already have a law against this. It's called battery or mayhem, okay, injuring another person's body, their, their health, intentionally doing it, okay. And, and so we really didn't even need another law. We just needed to enforce the law we already had, which is, of course, the common law. But see, because we no longer believe in common law, we don't think there's any law to enforce, so we have to go pass a statute, a positive law, to say you can't do it. Now, I'm going to explain to you why that's, that's creating horrors that I didn't even appreciate fully. Here's what dawned on me. The reason we don't know that this is a battery that's being committed, a common law battery against our children, is that both in the law and in society and in the church, we really don't know what a person is anymore. Or at least at best, we're uncertain. Now, you would say, well, of course I know what a person is. But if we really knew what a person is, we would know that there must already be a law that says you just can't go out and cut off a young man's scrotum or remove a young girl's healthy breast buds. We wouldn't have to have a law about that. Isn't there already a law about that? We would be asking that question. But we don't ask that question. We think we have to go pass a law. Now, what I then realized that the Department of Justice that has intervened into the lawsuit in Tennessee. Now, this is a new thing taking place. There have been a couple of lawsuits over these laws, but the Department of Justice has not intervened. In the Tennessee litigation pending in federal district court today, the Department of Justice intervened, and they claimed that the Tennessee law violates the provision of the Constitution that says no state can deny persons the equal protection of the laws. Now, what's critical to understand about that in the complaint is that the Department of Justice is redefining persons or wanting the court to redefine persons in our Constitution away from an understanding that we are persons who have bodies that are sexed to persons understood in terms of gender identity theory. Okay? Now, what the Department of Justice says in the complaint is all persons have a gender identity. And then it breaks persons into two categories. It's very clear as you read the complaint, it refers to transgendered persons 
those who have a subjective understanding of who they are and where they fit into society that does not correspond to their body and non-transgendered persons, people like me, whose understanding of who I am corresponds to my body. And then it says something that I didn't get. I thought all transgendered persons really have gender dysphoria. But no, the Department of Justice says there are transgendered people, take me for example, that um, think they're a woman, but um, you know they're fine with continuing to look like a male in terms of their body. They just change their clothes and appearance and start going to the women's restroom and the women's locker room and competing in the women's sporting events. He says, but there are some transgender people who, who just can't deal with that inconsistency and they have gender dysphoria. So the only way to solve their problem is to start removing body parts. So there's now a correspondence between who they subjectively are and their objective body. So we're now to understand ourselves not as bodies to be protected from injuries, but gendered identities to be protected from misidentification. Does that make sense? Do you see where we're going here? So what the Department of Justice is claiming and the ACLU is claiming is that this law denies equal protection based on sex assigned at birth. Now notice that distinction. Sex assigned at birth should not necessarily be your sex later because your sex is going to be whatever your gender identity is, whether or not you've had any corrective surgeries. I know this sounds crazy, but listen, doesn't Scripture say when you abandon God, when you refuse to be thankful for what God's given us, you wind up becoming futile in your thinking and you become a fool. We're seeing the wrath of God being played out on us because, to be honest, the church lost its proper conception of law and abandoned the field of law and turned it over to the Benthamites and the Holmesians and the people who follow them in the church. And I just listened to a podcast from a gentleman who's really fine on baptism and justification, but his theology in terms of understanding culture and history and the eschaton and the relationship of the believer to the world was so horrible, I had to turn it off in 20 minutes. I couldn't even fathom listening to it anymore. Oh, well, I'm sorry. I kind of went off on a rant. But, but here's what's happening in the case. The state of Tennessee took up the bait. They argued with the fools according to their folly, not by saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, the Constitution applies to persons. We have to first define what the word person means in the Constitution according to the common law that provided the foundation for the common law and the nomenclature and the lexicon for the common law. Instead, they take the bait and begin to say, no, this applies to all sexes equally, boys and girls. But of course, they're missing the point that sex, according to the Department of Justice, changes from that which is assigned to birth to that which you identify with at a later time. So having accepted that this is not about trying to define the word person as those who have bodies, they've fallen into the trap of trying to argue about the word sex 
when sex is what they've put at issue. They do the same thing when the plaintiffs, the ACLU and the Department of Justice say that that gender identity people, transgendered people, transgendered people with gender dysphoria are a quasi-suspect class like race that, that should be given special attention and protection by the courts. And they try to argue that, no, um, they shouldn't be considered a suspect class for various reasons. When the point should be, these aren't classes of persons, not according to the Constitution. What are you even talking about? Why are we even talking about suspect class? The class is those who are defined by common law as persons who are defined as those who have bodies. And you see, if you make that kind of argument, you cut through whether it's male or female or whether it's transgendered or non-transgendered or gender identity theory. It's all irrelevant. Are you a bodied person? And does your body have a certain design and telos to it that, oh, uh, you're a male, you have male genitalia, it has a certain purpose, and to cut it off is to injure the body, period, end of the discussion. It's no different because it's done by a, a person of higher learning in a white coat than Lorena Bobick, who cut off her husband's penis, right? It's all the same thing. But because you're wearing a white coat and you pass yourself as a, off as a doctor, we think that somehow it's okay to do that because we've forgotten what persons are. We don't even argue over that anymore. For 48 years, we never argued that the unborn was a person under the Constitution when the common law clearly says the unborn are persons. We still have never argued that. That's why we have some states that are still killing babies. But we've become so positivistic in the law that we don't think there's already a law that can be enforced. And what we should have done is argue, as I'm arguing in a brief today, that if you would like a copy, send us an email, and I'll send you a PDF link to it. Our email is info at factn.org. That's info at factn.org. And just ask us to send you the equal protection brief, the equal protection brief, and I'll send you the link to it. But what we're arguing is, no, we have to go back to the common law because our whole legal system is founded on the common law. The common law defined persons as bodies uh, that could be touched wrongfully. That's what a person was. The, the common law even defines a battery as the touching of another person. Now think about it. The touching of another person, if persons are defined by their subjective sense of who they are in their head, how do I ever touch them? We're obviously thought of persons as bodies and embodiments of realities and natures that we're not free to change. Now, here's the scary part. I picked up on this early in my legislative career, but I didn't consistently apply it, and I, and I didn't apply it really well in my thinking through uh, things like this transgender law until more recently. But I think it was my second year in the legislature. Uh, a lobbyist came to me, knew I was a pro-family conservative Christian guy, and asked me if I would carry a covenant marriage bill 
like one that Tony Perkins had recently passed in Louisiana. And and the idea was let's let's not reform our our marriage divorce laws that now leave you to just kind of leave for no reason. Let's let's just pass a a different law that says, well, this is a covenant kind of marriage, and you can only get out of it if there's infidelity or abandonment or, you know, abuse that you can prove. You have to have cause to get out of it, right? And I said, no, I'm not going to carry that. Now, this is this is 1996, oh, could have been 97. I said, I'm not going to carry it because the whole idea of this covenant marriage bill is that marriage is something the government can create. And if we can create a marriage that has no fault attached to it and marriage that has fault attached to it, well, we're going to soon have homosexuals coming in saying, well, if the government can create a no-fault kind of marriage and a covenant kind of marriage, why can't they create a homosexual marriage? And at that time, we were fighting over civil unions. I said, I'm not going there. It conveys the idea that government is creating by its law marriage when we already know what marriage is. Is We already have a law on marriage. It needs to be fixed. It needs to be reformed. It shouldn't be licensed. It should be able to be proved by other means, such as an affidavit. But I knew then that there was already a law there. But I was slow to come around to the realization that why are all the states passing these laws against transgender surgeries and procedures and hormone therapies that ruin the body? When we already have laws against battery and hurting and injuring and harming another person's healthy body. All we needed to do was just have people injured by those procedures go into court and sue. And, and maybe the legislature needed to extend the statute of limitations longer. Now, what do I mean by that? Statute of limitations is the idea in the law that if something happens to you, you, you can't sit around and 30 years later decide, oh, I'm going to sue because so-and-so breached their contract or so-and-so broke my nose. Um, there's a, a period of limitations where if you don't bring the lawsuit, you lose your claim. And most of the time in cases of battery or torts or medical malpractice, the, the period of time in which to search your claim is, is a year or a year within the realization that there was damage occurred. So for example, if a doctor left a sponge in you and and there was no way for you to know until you got sick three years later and all of a sudden they realize a sponge is rotted in your gut and it's causing all your problems. Well, then you'd have a year from then. But that's the idea. So the, all we needed to say is, well, sometimes these people who go through, through transgender procedures don't realize the full extent of the harm to them for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years. But, but the claim already exists. I don't need to pass a statute that says you have a right to sue over it. You already have a right to sue over it. You just need to have a longer statute of limitations. Now, here's what happens when you start passing statutes without making it clear that you're simply codifying what the law already is. It looks like you are creating a new law, right? A positive law, one that came out of somebody's head. Well, if the law's coming out of your head, then the Department of Justice is correct that you can redefine the word person because the sovereign, in this case, the judge, doesn't have to consider a pre-existing law. He can just say, well, let's see here. What do I think the word person means? Uh, I, I think a person does mean gender identity. You see what happens? We are undermining ourselves by positivizing all the law 
or allowing the positive law to be considered as independent of the, any pre-existing law. This is why I'm so concerned about the states that in their zeal and good intentions are passing parental rights statutes because they say nothing in the enactment of those statutes to say we are simply codifying what the law already says is true about the relationship between the parent and the child and stating it more clearly so nobody is confused. Nobody has to use wisdom to figure it out. We don't have to go to court first and have a judge look at it. But what we're doing in passing those laws is opening the idea up that, well, you created parental rights by that statute, and if you've created them, well, you can uncreate them and you can change them because it's just positive law. So because the Christian community is awash in positive law and doesn't know it and thinks that they need to pass a statute, they're actually undermining the whole concept that there is a law that already exists that's been worked out over the centuries just like the conception of biblical law is found in narrative stories and history stories and prophecy and poetry and commands. It is law worked out in the context of life. And that's what common law is. Well, I hope today has been helpful to you. Next week, let me tell you what we're going to do. I want to cover some of the history of this shift from a true conception of common law to this Benthamite Holmesian conception of law and tell you some things about American history that our side probably doesn't want to tell you because it undermines our Christian nation narrative and the liberal side doesn't want to tell you because it undermines their we're a secular society narrative. And I want to show you how that worked itself out over the early 1800s up into the early 1900s when Holmes pulled the switch and redefined, distorted, and deformed common law. So I hope you'll join me next week for the next episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.